Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Good morning, V-Lifers. How are we? Awesome. I hope you like that little video. It's important that we don't just talk about the Word of God, but that we live it. And nothing is more exciting to me than to actually get to see with my eyes the very places and things that we're talking about in the study. In that video, you saw one of the places that they believe could have been the crossing for uh, the nation of Israel out of Egypt and into the Promised Land or into the wilderness of Sinai at Nueva Beach. Uh, You also saw the place that they came upon Uh, called the Oasis of Elam that had the 70 palms and 12 wells that are still there to this day. It's pretty phenomenal. And at the uh, place of Sinai, you saw the Golden Calf altar site that we talked about much in this series. And then also at the very last, the split rock of Oreb, which it's hard to tell from the video, but it's about a story tall, this this, uh, rock. And it's split right down the middle from water erosion. Not only has it been eroded down the middle, but also all of the rocks cascading down the, the val- into the valley, there are also water eroded as if a geyser of magnitude is what caused that. It's phenomenal to, to see this in, in our very day. When skeptics and scholars say there is no evidence for the biblical stories whatsoever, we can go to the very place and say, you're a moron. You're not smart as you think you are. God is alive, God is real, the Bible is true, and if you open your heart to it, it will change your life. It will absolutely transform your life, and today is no different. We are, for those of you that are new today, I see several new faces, welcome, Uh, it's so awesome that you're here. Our one goal at our church is that everyone comes just as they are, that you come the same, but you leave changed. And we believe that that happens when you have an encounter with the presence of God, when you have an encounter with the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. And so our prayer going into today and even now as I stand before you is that all of our humanity gets out of the way and God just shows up and you have an encounter with His love, His grace, and His presence unlike you've ever done before. And that's what drives us here week after week. So Lord, you are here we recognize your presence god you promised where two or more are gathered in your name jesus you'd be among us so we come in jesus name we come god to do one thing and one thing alone and that is to listen for your voice that is to encounter your presence not so that we can have good and funny feelings but god that we can be transformed by your word by the renewing of our mind that our lives would be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, that your spirit would so burn in us, God, that no matter where we go, that place would be changed and transformed. God, we have a heart for the kingdom of God. We have a heart for the king who is Christ the Lord. And we, together, in agreement, say amen, amen, and amen. Woo! All right. This is off to a good start. All right. So last week, we ended the book of Exodus. This week, we're getting into the book of Leviticus. How many of you, uh, just in complete honesty, thought, you know, I'm going to do a really good thing. I'm going to read through the entire Bible, cover to cover. You started in Genesis, and you're like, all right, you know, this is, this is going pretty good. You get to Exodus, and you're like, all right, this is pretty interesting. And then you get to Leviticus. 
And you ask the question, oh God, why this book? Why, oh why, did you put this one in here, right? There's so many customs, rules, regulations, so many things God is instructing the nation of Israel. And, and it's easy to go through this and, and be like, okay, I can, I'm going to struggle through this one. This one's completely boring. All these rules that I don't even know how they apply to me. And, and I'm just going to kind of get through this one. Hopefully the next one will be more interesting. And maybe you put on the audio Bible and half check out so you don't even have to really listen to it. You just kind of say, I got through it. Right? But if you're not careful, you will miss part of the story. You will miss part of the very thing God was doing to reveal his wisdom, his glory to the people of Israel and to you who opens the book. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. Right? So this is the very word of God, the very breath of God come alive. Every time you open scripture, you have an opportunity to hear from the Lord. And in this book, it's, it's, it's fascinating in what it tells, but it also continues to unpack the reality of what God was doing so that one day he could cultivate, cultivate a people for himself that he could live in eternal, perfect love and relationship forever and ever and ever. And if we miss this part, we'll miss the reason why Jesus came to begin with. We'll miss it. We'll just say, well, that's the story we tell at Easter, Jesus dying on the cross. But many of us, we know he did that. We don't know why he had to do it. And we say, well, it's because of sin. But we still don't understand, why couldn't God come up with another reason or another way? Many people ask that question. They ask, why? If God's all-knowing, if God is all-powerful, why couldn't he have just come up with another way? Well, Leviticus tells us why. Leviticus tells us why. And, and what's amazing about uh, these books, especially the first five books of the Old Testament, we call them Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Hebrew people call it the Torah or the law. The names for those books are not the original names. Those are the English names. The book of Leviticus has a Hebrew name, and its name is Vayikra. Somebody say that ten times fast. Vayikra. Vayikra. It's the way they call, say it in Hebrew. Now, the name Vayikra, it means literally to call, to cry, to utter a loud sound, to cry for help. This is what this word means. In the beginning statement in the book of Leviticus, God is calling out to Moses. He is crying out. If you can imagine the definition of what this means, it's not that God was in need of help, but God was crying out in desperation to Moses. Calling out to Moses. And we discovered in our study in the book of Exodus that often Moses would go into the tent of meeting and meet with God, and God would tell him, uh, to give him instructions and commands, and then Moses would go relay this information to the people. This is a snapshot into what conversations God was having with Moses. God was telling him, look, if you're going to be my people, if you're going to be holy unto the Lord, here is how you do it. Here is how you maintain this relationship that we have together. And he was not just calling out in a nonchalant way that really didn't matter. No, this was a call of desperation, a call of a cry of God's very own heart. 
And there was really, if you look at all these sacrifices that he talks about, all these rules and ordinances, there are really, in regards to the sacrifices, a twofold purpose for these instructions. And it was quite obvious to the people of Israel in that day, because you'll read about it in the other books as we go on. But there was a twofold purpose. Number one, that when God divides the promised land to the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of priests, he doesn't give any land to. Matter of fact, he gives land to every other tribe except the Levites. He tells the Levites, you have to live amongst your brethren. And the portion that I'm going to give you, it's going to be to serve me in the temple. So the privilege they received wasn't land, it was the presence of God. I think I would take their portion over the land. Amen? Amen. So they didn't get to have their own land, which meant they couldn't farm, they couldn't raise cattle, they couldn't do any of the things other people did for an occupation. So they, all they did was they served in the temple. They performed the sacrifices. They offered the offerings to the Lord for the people. So one of the ways God provided for the people is that they gave them the tithes and the offerings. When people would bring their grain and their sacrifices, a portion of the meat, many of the sacrifices and the tithes would go directly to the priests to take care of their needs. That's how God provided for the priests. Like in what we do in, in church today, the people give their offerings, and that goes to pay for the ministerial staff and the ministries of the church. So this is what they were doing back in that day. So they not only sacrificed to maintain this relationship with the Lord, but they also um, they provided for the priests. The, the second reason is though even though God was with them, his presence was among them, and we read that God's presence is what made them holy— his presence was conditional. His presence with the people of Israel was conditional. He said, be careful to obey all the commands I've given you. Be careful to obey all of these commands. So it depended on their obedience to the covenant of God that God's presence would remain with the people. When the covenant was violated, it jeopardized their relationship with God could remove the blessing of God off of the people, off of the nation, because what God has not blessed is cursed. What God has not blessed is cursed. And so they didn't want to live as a cursed people, rejected by God. They wanted to be accepted and blessed by God. So the priests would offer these sacrifices. And God, who is rich in mercy, he did not abandon them on their first failure, but instead... He provided a way for atonement. Somebody say atonement. Atonement is a key word in Scripture. It's a way for sin to be forgiven and relationship with God restored. It's a way for sin to be forgiven and relationship with God to be restored so that the people of Israel could continue enjoying the presence and favor of God in the nation. So what does God tell Moses in the tent of meeting? He says... When you want atonement, when you need atonement, here is how you make atonement. Here are the sacrifices. Here's what is acceptable. Here's what I will accept on your behalf to right what has been wrong. I know many people, including skeptics, have looked at the sacrificial system and accused God of just being a bloodthirsty God with just no mercy in his sight. That he's just bloodthirsty. All he wanted was blood. But you know what? They simply just looked at the requirements and didn't understand the heart behind the story. 
They don't understand the reality of why this is the case. And it's a failure of understanding that also marginalizes and minimizes the offering that Christ Jesus gave. You know, people who dismiss sin as not a big deal are minimalizing the reality of Christ's cross. Right? If sin wasn't a big deal, then how cruel was it to put Jesus on the cross? We need to understand that God takes sin seriously enough that it required the sacrifice of Christ. This is a big deal. It's not a trivial thing to God. So why the sacrifice? Why did God require Israel to sacrifice animals in order to maintain or have this right relationship with God to atone for their sin? Well, God gives us the revelation in Leviticus chapter 17. If you skip this book, you never heard this before. If you've never read through this book, you, you've never come to this realization of why Jesus even had to go to the cross. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, God tells Moses, For the life of the body is in its blood, and I've given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. Or that phrase can also be translated as to make atonement for you. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible or atonement possible. So here God is telling Israel that if you want to be right with me, it's going to require something. It's going to require something. The life is in the blood, and in order for one life to be absolved of its sin, another life has to take its place. For forgiveness to be possible, something has to atone for the sin. You know, we operate in this reality all the time. If, if you're a parent and you, you're, you know, walking down the street with your child and someone jumped out of a van and tried to kidnap your child, you wouldn't just hand your child over and say, well, that was good knowing them. No, what, you'd fight for them. And you'd hope to God that that criminal was caught and that justice was poured out. Why? Because when sin is committed, when evil is perpetrated, it must be atoned for in order for things to be made right again. Justice must be poured out on evil for things to become corrected. So the life of the body is in the blood. Without the blood, the body cannot survive. Even minor wounds. This Minor wounds can have disastrous consequences if they're not treated or taken care of. And what blows my mind is that even the smartest people or so-called smartest people in the world, they didn't catch up to what the Bible said 3,600 years ago till about 200 years ago. Talking about life of the body is in the blood. There was a medical practice treating ailments, all various kinds of ailments, called bloodletting. And what they would do when someone became sick is that they would drain your blood. Sometimes they would attach leeches to you to suck your blood out, thinking that they were going to suck out the poison, making you sick. President George Washington, our first president, after he retired, the commander-in-chief woke up at 2 a.m. on December 14, 1799, with a simple sore throat. And after various medical procedures, and one in which drained 40% of his blood, he ended up dying that night. What God said nearly 3,600 years ago, that life was in the blood, our scientists didn't discover until 221 years ago. 
They were still draining blood. When did we stop bloodletting? According to an article from the Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh, it states that as late as the 1940s, a leading textbook of medicine recommended bloodletting for pneumonia, but the practice was not abolished until well into the 20th century. How awesome is this Bible and this Word of God? There are many instances just like this where God says a factual statement about the world and our reality that we didn't discover to about 100 years ago, and he said for 3,600 years. It's in a fascinating and amazing book. Maybe we should listen to what the Bible says. I don't know about you. But why is this significant? Why does it matter to know that the life is in the blood? Because of what he says in verse 11 of Leviticus 17. He says, it is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification or atonement possible. The agent of life, the blood, must be given in exchange for a life. And again, why is this the case? Why, why is this true? Why did God make it like this, right? He made everything. He set everything up. So why did he set it up like this? Why couldn't have God thought of a different way for atonement, right? Why, why couldn't he just said, just give $1,000 for, for every sin, and then, you know, it'll be atoned for? Why did he do that? But see, the reality is, is that God did not cause this. We did. We caused this. In Genesis, chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, God made the world. He made it perfect. When he was done creating, he said, I'm looking at everything, and it's not just good. It's very good. And when God said something is good, beloved, it's good. It's really good. And he made man and woman perfect without sin, without even the knowledge of pain and suffering or evil. And when he put them in the garden to cultivate the ground and to reign over the world and to be his kings of the earth, so to speak, he says, I give all of this to you. There's just one thing I'm holding back for myself. It's the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Don't eat that tree. That's my tree. You can have everything else, just not that one. But we know the story, the serpent deceived the woman, and the woman gave fruit to the man, and they rebelled against God. And so God comes into the garden, and he finds them hiding. They covered their shame with some fig leaves and were afraid of the Lord now because they were seeing themselves in light of who they were now. They were not in the glory of God any longer, but they were altogether naked in their sin and in their shame, and they were afraid. And God pronounces judgment on the man, he pronounces judgment on the woman, he pronounces judgment on the enemy. In Genesis 15, 17, he says, The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it, but the Lord warned him, You may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to what? You're sure to die. Death did not exist until Adam ate the fruit. There was no reason for sacrifice until Adam ate the fruit. The day you eat of it, you are sure to die. Not only did they die spiritually, but their bodies began to reveal the curse. They began to age. They began to grow old. 
You know, when Adam cultivated the ground before the curse, he could do it with ease. And now he's got that carpal tunnel. He's got that slip disc in the back from years of bending over. He's got all the aches and pains, all the curse of aging. Why? Because the curse of death now reigns over his body. He began to die. Romans 5.12 says, when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world. But sin did not have any power in the world. But the moment God's man opened that door, sin entered into the world. And now Adam's sin didn't just bring death to Adam or to Eve. His death brought death, or sin brought death to everyone. Death spread to everyone. For now everyone has sinned. His sin has now created a ripple effect like throwing a stone out into a, a still lake. The crystal clear water is undisturbed. But when that stone drops... It not only makes a big splash, but you see the ripples go on what seems like out to eternity. It went far beyond his possible imagination. Ripple effect. So not the life God intended, the life that was very good. Now the sin man wanted to avoid is now dominating the world. And when Adam turned to God or turned away from God, sin was born. Sin had power and now death is the reality not just for man, but all creation groans. And all men stand as guilty before God. The power of sin and death reigns over every soul because death is the result of sin, and we are all guilty of sowing death into the world. Why? Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us at one time or another turned away from God in disobedience, have sinned. We've sown death into our lives. And how many times have you, out of anger, spoken a harsh word to someone you loved? That's death. How many of you have been tempted to do something you knew you weren't supposed to do, but you did it anyway? That's death. To take something that didn't belong to you, that's death. We're all guilty of sowing death into the world. Even the sin we unintentionally commit, we still bear the guilt of sowing death into the world. In Leviticus chapter 4, verse 13, as God is giving Israel these commands, here's what he says. He says, if the entire Israelite community sins by violating one of the Lord's commands, but the people don't realize it, they're exempt from that sin, right? Is that what it says? No. What's it say? It says, they are still what? Guilty. They're still accountable. Even if you don't realize you're sinning, you are still guilty. You're still guilty for your sin. The book of James, James in James chapter 2 verse 10, he says, For the person who keeps all the laws except one is guilty as a person who's broken all of God's laws. And you know what we like to do, beloved? We like to look at everyone else's sin and we like to gauge ourselves by how wicked they are. Oh, that person is a murderer? Oh, I'm pretty good over here. I just have a problem with telling the truth. But that, that person, that's, they're a murderer. They're a child molester. They're an evil person. I'm not so bad over here. But yet James says if you've broken the law in any way, you're as guilty as someone who's broken all the laws. All have sinned. All are guilty. There is none righteous. No, not one. Even pride, the simple condition of your heart, is one of the things God specifically says you hate. Why? Because out of pride comes all sin. Pride, 
is enough to make you guilty of all. There is no excuse for sin, not even ignorance qualifies a person for exemption from judgment. Adam went from eternal life now to eternal death. The reality of his soul began to manifest in his body, began to age, physically die, because at the moment he sinned, he spiritually died, and in that state he was unacceptable to the Lord. He was fallen from grace, his glory was gone, and he and his wife left naked and ashamed, and they could no longer dwell in the presence of God anymore. He kicked them out of the garden. Why? Because sin cannot stand in the presence of God without being judged, without being condemned. In that state, he would have surely died. And God, in his mercy, removes him from his presence. If you continue to read the rest of the story in Genesis, as we did before, God still appears to his children. He appears in an act of mercy and has conversation. You can see how he has conversation with Cain, warning him about what sin wants to do in his life. But Cain, of course, doesn't listen and murders his brother Abel. But long before the law was ever given to Moses, they were sacrificing. That's the reason why Cain killed his brother. They offered sacrifices to the Lord to try to right what was wronged in their lives. And God accepted Abel's sacrifice. He didn't accept Cain's. So sacrificing happened long before the law was ever given. So God's not inventing something new in the book of Leviticus. He's just instructing how to do it right for it to be a worthy sacrifice. Why were they making offerings? They were making offerings to atone. To rectify their debt to the Lord. So after Adam and Eve sinned, God pronounced this judgment. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, here's where we get the understanding of the sacrifice. That after sin, after death has now entered the world, God comes to Adam and Eve. It says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who would live. And then the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. After the fall, after the sin in Genesis 3, when they had tried to cover their shame with fig leaves, God, in an act of grace and mercy, takes the lives of some animals and makes clothing for them out of the skin, out of their hides for those animals. He shed the blood of animals in order to cover them physically, cover their physical shame. God makes a covering for them. And in that first act of grace, God opens the door for blood atonement. Here's your shame, here's your guilt, but I'm going to cover you by putting your guilt upon something else. Long before the law, God showed that the guilty could go free and grace could be applied if the blood of another was shed in their place. And this is awesome. The atonement is an amazing word. This word atonement can also be translated a few other ways, like a covering, but it can also be translated like pitch, asphalt, or tar. And it's also used in another very famous story, the story of Noah and the ark. When God comes to Noah and he tells him to build this ark to uh, save his family and all these animals, he tells him specifically in verse 14 to build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. So God has Noah covered this structure that he's building with this tar, not just on the outside, but also on the inside, so that the waters of judgment he's getting ready to pour out won't come into the ark and kill everybody that's there, won't sink this vessel that's meant to be the agent of their salvation. 
to keep from the judgment penetrating the Ark of the Covenant. It became their covering and protected them from the flood that he was pouring out. So just as God covered Adam and Eve with animal skins, the blood of other animals provided for their covering, God used the tar as a covering for Noah and his family. God provided for the physical covering of people, or people of Israel in the sacrificial system to protect them from the judgment of God. It covered their exterior to make them able to stand in God's presence and dwell in God's presence. Now, the difficulty of the law that Israel never realized, and we read this on into the New Testament, is they never woke up to the reality as a nation that a person can never be justified by the law. We have 613 commands in the Old Testament, and a person cannot be justified by those commands. Why? Because we're incapable of keeping them all. We're incapable of being justified by the law. And that's why they had to offer sacrifices continually year after year to cover their sin, both personally and corporately as a nation, because the moment they kept one law, they'd break another. And then they'd keep another law, and then they'd break another. And so they constantly had to bring their sacrifices and their offerings to the Lord. What they couldn't keep, or what they wanted that they couldn't keep, God's righteousness, was the cry of their heart. They wanted what they couldn't keep. And what they kept, they didn't want. It was their impurity and their sinfulness. Paul, in the book of Romans, begins to expound on this reality for us. In Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 14, it says, Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would have no power. At one time I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me, but still, the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy, right, and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It used God's good commands for its own evil purposes. So the trouble is not with the law, for it's spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. What is Paul saying? He's saying this nature in us, this curse that's on us, that Adam opened to the world, makes it impossible to live up to the law. Why? The moment God says, here is the standard of good, something in us says, I don't want that, and I want to go the other way. I don't want that. So we're constantly in this state of rebellion and turning away from the Lord. We automatically want to do the opposite. Right? You drive out on the road and the speed limit sign says 70, and you think, that's not fast enough. I'm going 75, or I'm going 80. There's something in us that wants to buck against what is right and what are the laws of God. And every time we follow what is leading our hearts away from the Lord, it breeds death into the world. This is why they had to sacrifice again and again and again, because whenever they learned of the law, 
sin exposed that knowledge and revealed its own evil desires. And Israel could not hold on to the righteousness they longed for because they continued to follow sin's rebellion into wickedness. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9 is making the case that Jesus, who became our high priest, not only represents us in heaven mediating this new covenant that we have uh, in the new covenant before the Lord, but he begins to compare the old and the new covenants together. In Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 13, says, Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. That word conscience literally means your moral awareness. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That's why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called, somebody say, who are called. So that all who are called can receive the internal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of sins they had committed under that first covenant. So the animal sacrifice, the blood of goats and bulls, could only cover the exterior. It could only anoint the outside. It could only cover them for a time. It gave them superficial holiness, a religious gloss. But the better, the greater sacrifice of Jesus had the power to not only cover us on the outside, but to purify our conscience, our moral awareness, our ability not only to discern between good and evil, but to give us the power to overcome sin and that nature that wars against the Spirit of God. This nature that tries to capitalize on God's revelation to accuse, to condemn, to put to death and release death into the world. It's the very same nature this the enemy, the devil, tirelessly tries to exploit in each and every one of us. The sacrifice of Christ is sufficient not just to cover us on the outside, but to purify us on the inside. Under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, there could be atonement, but the people of Israel remained condemned. Because the law existed to show them that they were sinners, to show them they could never be righteous. No matter how hard they tried, they could never get there. No matter what they tried to do, it was impossible. 613 commands of God. And you know what? That was the purpose of it. The purpose of it was to say, my righteousness and my holiness is so high, so above human effort, that there's no way you can get there. So that the people of God who wanted to honor God would say, oh God, then if I can't do it on my own, then I need a savior. I need somebody to, to help me here. I need somebody to help me find this, this salvation, this atonement that you've promised. And that was exactly the reason why he was sending the Messiah. To be that savior. To reveal why Jesus had to come. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I came. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Their purpose was to say God is beyond glory. His holiness and righteousness is beyond human comprehension. You can't get there on your own. You need a Savior. And Jesus came to be that Savior. Whew. Philippians 3.3 says, We who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. Circumcision was part of the law. All 
males of the nation of Israel on the eighth day had to be circumcised. But here, we who worship in the spirit are truly circumcised, not in body, but of the heart. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. We, we can't get there on our own. It's been proven by the law. So we don't put any confidence in the law, but we do put confidence in one who fulfilled the law perfectly. Galatians 3.27 says, all who've been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Just as God made new clothes for Adam and Eve to cover their shame, we who have been united in Christ have been covered. And so has our shame. And not just covered. God shed the blood of animals to cover the nakedness and shame of the human body, but God shed the blood of Jesus to cover the nakedness and shame of the human soul. The blood of animals covered the evidence of sin's power, but the blood of Jesus broke sin's power. The blood of animals restored our relationship with God until the next sin. The blood of Jesus covers all of our sin for all time. Just like the ark was to be covered inside and out, the blood of Jesus doesn't just cover us on the outside, but also transforms us on the inside. Hebrews chapter 10, 1 and 10, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, and here he's beginning to quote Psalms chapter 40. This is what Jesus himself cried out to the Lord. He says, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you've given me a body to offer. You've given me something to offer you. Now, in other translations of the Old Testament, well, it will not record given me a body. It will say, you have made me listen, and I finally understand. But even in the context of what he's saying, he continues in verse 6, quoting in Isaiah 40, he says, you are not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, and then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as written of me in the scriptures. What was his will? To pay the price for sin for all time with his very own body. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The scriptures have declared what Messiah would come and what he would do. In verse 8 it says, Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, burnt offerings or any other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they were required by the law of Moses. And then he said, look, I've come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put in the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. This is the significance of the communion. It's to celebrate the once and for all sacrifice of the Lord. We don't have to shed blood anymore, beloved. It's been shed. We just have to accept the blood that was shed on our behalf. The sacrifices of the Old Testament foreshadowed what Jesus would accomplish 
in the New Testament. As you begin to read this book, think about it like this. There are many offerings in the book of Leviticus. The peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the burnt offering, the purification offering, the reparation offering, the fellowship offering, voluntary sacrifices, mandatory sacrifices, sacrifices of thanksgiving, the grain offering, the drink offering, the wave offering. So many offerings. And yet Jesus fulfills them all. Woo! He fulfills them all. Let me paint this for you in a more tangible way. Let's say for argument's sake, you're a raging alcoholic. And you've been known to highlight every bar in town. And you have a reputation because you don't handle your liquor well and you end up getting in scuffles or fights and there have been many calls for disorderly conduct and you have a rap sheet a mile long. And tonight's no different. You're going to go on a binger. And at the behest of your friends in the protest, you ignore every warning about going home and drinking and driving because what do they know anyway? They don't know you. They're not living your life. And you get in your car, and you start zooming down the road, and you actually don't care about the speed limit sign or how crazy you're driving. One, either because your inhibitions have so lowered that you just don't have it within you to care, or you're so out of your mind, you don't know the difference. But you're zooming down the road and still knocking back that last cold one because you don't want to waste anything, and you don't see the stop sign up ahead or the lights of the car moving through the intersection. And at the last second, when it's too late to hit the brakes, you T-bone that car with a brand new 16-year-old little girl driver, and you kill her instantly. Devastating scene. And here come the paramedics and the officers. And you come to long enough as the officers are arresting you and putting you in the car to walk by her lifeless body on the ground. And they take you to the holding cell to sober up and in the morning to be arraigned before the judge. And you're standing there before the judge and it hits you because you no longer have the numbing effect of the alcohol in your system. Oh God, what have I done? And not only are you overcome, but in come mom and dad, the family of the young girl, weeping, crying. And you can't even look back to make eye contact because you're so devastated. And then you hear the sound all rise, and the honorable walks in and takes his place, and you know at any moment your life is over. There's no amount of community service that can overcome this. You might have been able to work your way out of a speeding ticket. But after so many warnings and now a tragic accident, you're going away for a long time. And in this state, vehicular manslaughter is equal to murder. So chances are you're going to lose your life. The Honorable begins to look it over the case and begins to read not just your current crime, but your entire rap sheet. Starts at the beginning through everything you've ever done. Your whole, your whole life is before you. Every infraction, every 
crime that you've committed, everything that's on your record. He begins to read it. And he gets to the final one, the final straw on the back, and you're just overcome. You're like, this is it. My life is over. I've just made a mess of myself. I'm as good as dead. And just before he is about to pronounce your sentence, the father of the daughter stands up. He says, hold on a minute. My son and I were talking. And we know this was not their fault. They weren't in control. Yes, they chose to drive. Yes, they chose to drink. Yes, they chose to do all these things. But it was the addiction, the power over them that led them to do these things. We want you to show grace and mercy. And the judge says, I can't do that. You see what's before us. You see, this is a habitual thing. This has gone on, and this is a result of their consequences. This person's a bad person. They're, they're just going to hurt more people. We, we can't let this go on. We have to enact justice in this moment. And the father's like, I understand. My son and I were talking, and he's volunteered to take their place. He's never committed a crime. He has nothing on his record. We'd like you to exchange names. He'll take their rap sheet. And you can give them his. And the judge, bewildered at the act, knowing justice would still be served, but also an opportunity for grace and mercy, reluctantly gives the father what he wants. And he says, okay, if you're sure, I'll do it. And the father says, well, sure. So the son walks up to the bailiff with handcuffs. The judge exchanges names. The son takes your rap sheet, and you get his completely clear. And now you're beside yourself. Oh, my gosh. How is this even fair? Look what I did. Look what I'm responsible for. I can't. I caused the death. It's my fault, not, not his. He didn't do anything wrong. And the father says, I know. But we love you enough to give you another chance. And though my son's going away, I have a spare bedroom. And I'd like you to become part of my family. I'll pay for your sins. My son will pay for your sins if you come and accept a new life. You see, no amount of sacrifice is enough to pay Jesus back for what he did. No amount of good works, no amount of church attendance, no amount of money in the offering plate, no amount of Bible reading, and time in prayer can ever pay Jesus back for what he did. But thank God he did it. Thank God he did it. Thank God that his blood was given in exchange. His life was given in exchange for our lives. Second Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake... He was made to be sin 
who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't just pay for our sins. He became sin on our behalf so God could judge him and put his wrath on him so we could receive mercy. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, God has united you with Jesus Christ for our benefit. God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ has made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. He didn't just cover us on the outside. He cleansed us on the inside, pure and holy, as he freed us from sin. See, the atonement's been made, beloved, the perfect atonement. The permanent covering has come, that covering that protects from all accusation and all judgment. Romans 5, 17 says, The sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Grace and righteousness are available. That's why the gospel's good news. You're guilty of sin, but in Jesus, you're righteous and holy. The gospel is good news, but Paul says, only for those who receive it. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Do you know the Lord? God's grace and righteousness is available. And when you enter into relationship with God, when that exchange takes place in your life and you become born again, an infinite number of promises and blessings are applied to you. And one of my favorite all-time verses and promises of God, when I'm standing in view of God's holiness and I can see myself in all my sinfulness, Romans 8, 1 becomes a lifeline. It says, so now there is no condemnation. So now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So now there's no condemnation. What do you mean? Don't you see what I did? You see how rebellious I was as a child? So now... There's no condemnation. But I had an affair on my spouse, so now there is no condemnation. But I took my test at school, so now there is no condemnation. But I stole and I spent time in jail, there is now no condemnation. But I looked at all that stuff on the computer, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You think your sin surprises the one who knows everything. Did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurs to God? Nothing takes him by surprise. He knows it all. He, he knew the end from the beginning. He declared it. And so as he's looked at your life, he made atonement for your sins so that when you receive Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ and because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. There is now no condemnation. And now what we wanted but couldn't keep is righteousness. 
And what we kept but didn't want, our sinfulness, is now what we keep and can't get rid of, his righteousness. And what we want rid of and can't keep is our sinfulness. Because the atoning work is continuing not just to cover us, but to empower us to break free from our sinful nature. Vayikra. And he called. Just as he called out to Israel, Romans 1, 2, and 6, it says, God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Good news is about his son. And in this earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the son of God when he raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. And you are included among the Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus. You are among the people who have been called to belong to Jesus. God is calling you out of your wilderness and into his promised land. And he's calling you through the blood of his son that he shed in the palms of his hands. God longs for you to be in covenant with him. To prepare a room in his house and to become a son and a daughter. But it's as many as received him. To them, gave he power to become the sons of God. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this moment as the worship team comes forward. Lord, we cannot, we cannot pay you back for what you've done. We cannot pay you back. Though every fiber in our being, when we wake up to the reality of what you've done, Every fiber of our being wants to. Because we look at what you did. What you did on the cross. And we say, God, that's not fair. It's not fair. Jesus did nothing wrong. That was my sin. That was my fault. I brought death into this world. I spoke death into my relationship. I caused death at my job. It's not fair that Jesus would have to go through that. And God's response to us is, I know. But you couldn't pay me back. No matter how hard you tried. My law was given to show you, you can't do it yourself. You need something more. So by grace, are you saved through faith? Not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Not by works, lest anyone boast about it. You're saved by my grace. By accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. By accepting his payment for your sin. The one-time sacrifice for all sin has come. Will you receive it on your behalf? Maybe you're here today and you've never had that moment where you said, Wow, oh God, that wasn't fair. I'm guilty, not him. Will you allow the truth of the gospel to show you that, yeah, that's true, but he still died for you anyway. And he wants to cleanse you of that sin. 
He wants you to be born again into his family. He wants to adopt you as his own. He just wants you to receive him as your Lord and Savior. And the way you do that is simple. It says, you confess Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart. God's raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. Because it's with the heart you believe into salvation. And with the mouth, confession is made. It's in a simple prayer that says, God, from this day forward, I belong to you. I'm going to trust in your saving work on the cross. I'm going to proclaim you as my Lord and Savior. Today, my life is in your hands. And when you give your life to Jesus... The spirit comes to live in you, and the blood is applied on the outside and on the inside. And then when you stand before God, you can stand before him without fear, because there will be no sin to atone for, because you've been washed and you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. But maybe you're here today, and you're stuck in the reality of this world, and there's some stuff in your life. And you don't feel free from condemnation, but you feel altogether condemned. You feel a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. There's some stuff in the past that you've not been able to forgive yourself for. There's some stuff in your life right now that you've been trying to overcome, but you've kept it to yourself and you're just, you're not winning that one. The Bible also says if you come and confess your sins to one another and pray for each other, you can find healing. And we believe this time of response is the time where we can find healing. When people come forward and we pray for one another and the power of God is able to break down strongholds and set people free. Just a minute when we sing, we worship. I encourage you, if you need to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't stay in your seat. Fight that awkward tension and come forward. And our prayer team will be here to pray with you that you would find life in Christ today. And that's one of our joys is to celebrate people making decisions for Jesus. But two, if there's some stuff in your life that you've not been able to get over, we want to pray with you too because it's not God's will that you will live under condemnation. His promise is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I just believe that one of the things that are keeping our faith locked in, some of you, keeping you from taking forward steps in your faith is just this perpetual feeling of unworthiness because there's stuff in your past that you haven't forgiven yourself for. But if Jesus has forgiven you, the Father has forgiven you, you can forgive yourself. Why would you have any reason to hold on to that other than you're trying to pay him back? For what you did. The Bible says you can't do that. And he wants to free you from your heavy burden. He wants to release you of that guilt and shame. Those heavy weights. Big or small. He wants you free. And who the son of man has set free. Is free in what? Free indeed. So let this time of response. Be a time where you respond. If there's a need in your life that you just want to come forward in the presence of God and pray, the altar will be down here. You can pray. But as we declare the goodness of God, you respond. If you need to receive Jesus as your Savior, you come forward. If you need freedom from guilt and shame or anything that, that's been troubling you, come forward. Our prayer team's here ready to pray with you. But for the next few moments, let's just worship the Lord and respond to what he's doing. Lord God, we thank you in Jesus' name.
for your goodness. We thank you, God, for everything you're doing. And we just pray now, God, that your spirit will lead us. Your presence would fall on us. Thank you for your blood. In Jesus' name, amen. church we want to say thank you for listening if this ministry has blessed you in any way please consider making a tax deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give thank you and god bless